So I'm delighted today to have with us Mr. Ian Yardley. Um, Mr. Yardley is a consultant neonatal and pediatric surgeon at the Evelina Children's Hospital in London. He has a special interest in upper GI and thoracic surgery and has written several peer-reviewed papers in this field. And so today our podcast um, is actually a thoracic-based EPIPS, the first in our series. Um, so welcome, Mr. Yardley. Thank you. Um, so what I thought we would do is start off with some basic questions. Uh, the theme of it is going to be trachea And then what I thought we could do is to discuss two cases that we might typically encounter and how you would actually manage them. So the first question that I wanted to discuss was, what would you say is the definition of trachea Well, the first thing uh, to uh, understand about trachea is what a normal trachea is like. And because of the pressure changes during normal uh, ventilation, the colour of the trachea changes. And so on inspiration, it gets slightly bigger and on expiration, it gets slightly larger. But those changes aren't excessive because it has uh, essentially a skeleton, cartilaginous skeleton, that's formed of uh, C-shaped rings and then with a relatively uh, floppy bit uh, at the back. And um, those cartilaginous rings provide structure which prevent it from collapsing. Now, in tracheomalacia, that cartilage is in some way deficient or uh, insufficient to prevent that collapse. And so what typically happens is during normal uh, respiration, you get collapse uh, of the trachea on expiration and uh, obstruction or partial obstruction of the trachea, which gives rise to the symptoms of trachea Okay, um, thank you very much to start us off with that. So just moving on to as to what you actually said, what would be the common symptoms? I and mean, in what sort of age population are they particularly seen? Well, trachea uh, typically presents uh, a few months of age as the baby becomes a bit bigger and a bit more robust and starts uh, to uh, breathe a bit harder. Uh, although there are some exceptions to that, and uh, typically babies with tracheomalacia associated with esophageal atresia and tracheosophageal fistula present much sooner than this, present earlier than um, babies with isolated tracheomalacia. The uh, symptoms are, are varied, um, but uh, Stridor, uh, which is noisy breathing, is uh, the uh, classic presentation. And it's typically expiratory stridor, as explained by the fact that the uh, trachea collapses during expiration, and that's where you get the obstruction. This partial, uh, or indeed sometimes complete obstruction of the trachea gives rise to uh, a number of symptoms, which can just be as uh, innocuous as noisy breathing, but can be as severe as acute life-threatening episodes and full uh, respiratory arrest. Often uh, the babies uh, actually very well rest and, uh, and untroubled by it. And actually for a baby, the most uh, strenuous thing that they will do is feed. And that's often when um, you first start noticing um, uh, symptoms, maybe stride or, or difficulty breathing or inability to complete a feed due to short breath and increased work of breathing. Uh, other babies and, and older children um, may be uh, asymptomatic most of the time and then become symptomatic when they get an intercurrent illness. A simple viral uh, respiratory tract infection can cause them to get symptoms because uh, you get increased secretions and maybe some mucosal uh, inflammation or swelling, which uh, uh, changes a, a relative narrowing into a, a critical narrowing 
causes symptoms. And this is often uh, misdiagnosed as croup. And it's not uncommon uh, to see children, particularly slightly uh, older children, toddlers, um, who have been diagnosed as having recurrent croup. But actually, when you uh, push on the symptoms of that, it, it does sound like croup and they're treated for croup with uh, inhaled um, adrenaline and, and steroids, but this makes no difference to their symptoms. And actually, it's not creep they're describing trichomalacia. Okay. Um, so if you did go on to suspect trichomalacia based on these symptoms that you've just described, what would be your sort of line of investigation? Well, the um, the, the history is, is uh, obviously very important. And uh, even if um, you suspect they have trichomalacia, if they don't have significant symptoms... And so you're not actually going to intervene with this. There's not really any point in investigating any further. But if they do have significant symptoms and you think that they may need some intervention, then our standard approach at the Evelina is to do a CT bronch. Um, and this will be um, a bronchoscopy first under a general anaesthetic with the moving spontaneously. So they'll have uh, a dynamic, flexible bronchoscopy. And you can see the changes in the calibre of the trachea during uh, respiration um, and um, you can see uh, whether there's anything associated with that. Sometimes they have uh, pulsatile uh, compression of the trachea either from a, an overlying or occasionally an underlying vessel if there's an aberrant subclavian for example. Um, uh, and um, you, you may be able to see buckling of the cartilage because sometimes uh, trachea is, is asymmetric and is not uh, uniform across the trachea. Uh, and then um, under the same general anaesthetic, they'll go on to have a CT. Um, and uh, what we try and do is have uh, inspiratory and expiratory series on that. Um, and um, you need to uh, ensure that you've got a pretty confident um, anaesthetist who can have, first of all, the trachea tube high enough up in the trachea for it not to stent open the uh, the affected segment, which is usually the distal trachea. Um, and also um, to be absolutely sure that during the expiratory phase, there's no residual peep in the airways, because uh, when you take the peep off um, and have a proper expiratory view, you can often see quite marked changes in the colour of and not just the trachea, but sometimes the more distal airways too. Okay. Um, so when you've obviously collated all this data, I am aware that you have dealt with a lot of similar patients at your institution. So do you have a particular MDT setup um, for this and, and who is involved in it? Yeah, the uh, Evelina, we've got a very well established uh, airway service um, and um, have, have a, a weekly airway meeting, uh, which is um, led primarily by the intensive care uh, team, uh, but also includes respiratory physicians, ENT surgeons, cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, and myself as a general surgeon with an interest in um, uh, thoracic uh, surgery and particularly uh, airway surgery. And what we do there is we will uh, review uh, the cases, uh, like I said uh, earlier, starting with the history, and that's really important, actually. You can actually find quite marked uh, trachea in, in children who actually don't have any symptoms. And it's really key to understand what, what symptoms you, you're treating uh, when it comes to uh, deciding whether or not to intervene. And then we discuss the um, 
the bronchoscopy and CT findings uh, in the context often of other comorbidities. And that enables us um, to uh, divert their care to wherever is most appropriate. So, uh, for example, if um, they have multiple comorbidities and it seems unlikely that surgery will be beneficial, then the respiratory team can take them on and offer positive uh, pressure ventilation, which is a very effective way of treating trachomalacia. And if they have complex cardiac lesions, which will need addressing surgically, then the cardiac surgeons uh, will, will obviously be the best place to take that on. And so we can um, get a range of opinions uh, and make a, a plan uh, for the child's care in one go. Excellent. So you, you started to hint a little bit about the management of these babies. And so can you tell us a little bit about just an overview of sort of starting with medical management and then moving on to what surgical management options there are available? Yeah, so the um, first thing to understand uh, when, when you're making management decisions about choking relationships to natural history, and uh, as you, you know, uh, the cross-sectional uh, area of, of any lumen is proportional to the square of the radius. So as a child grows and, and gets bigger, then their airway gets bigger much faster proportionally than, than they grow. And so often what's uh, a critical narrowing in a small baby uh, becomes um, insignificant as the child grows. And they tend to grow out of trachea um, through their toddler and, and preschool years. So actually often you don't need to do anything uh, and you can just safely watch and wait uh, with these children, uh, anticipating that they will, uh, they will grow out of it and it will stop being a problem. If, however, it is a significant problem, um, for example, they're having recurrent hospital admissions, even intensive care admissions, or uh, the extreme end if they're having um, acute life-threatening episodes, then intervention may be required. And the non-surgical options, as uh, I've already alluded to, include positive pressure uh, ventilation to the airway. And just by applying uh, a small amount of, of positive pressure uh, can just hold open the airway and prevent that collapse during expiration. So uh, CPAP is a very effective treatment for trachea Obviously, that's not uh, convenient for um, a lot of children, a lot of families. Um, and sometimes if they have um, widespread um, airway problems, um, with trachea where the malacia extends beyond just the trachea, then uh, a tracheostomy, an application of positive pressure, uh, is um, a good option for these children as it avoids the need for a, a face mask um, to apply the positive pressure. And uh, for some children, um, surgery is an option. And commonly, when you um, look at the CT scans, you'll see there's uh, a crossing vessel, usually an innominate vessel, which sits right where the maximal point of um, trachea collapse is. And so if you do an aortopexy, then um, you can lift that vessel forwards uh, and create enough space uh, for um, the, the trachea to, to, to open out fully. Now, it's important to note that, that it's not really the vessel pressing on the trachea that is the, the problem, and, and lifting the vessel forward is not really the aim of um, aortopexy. What aortopexy aims to do is take advantage of the fascial um, investment of both um, the, the aortic great vessels and the trachea. And by lifting that whole apparatus forwards, you're creating more space 
and, and, and allowing the trachea to expand more fully. Sometimes um, an aortopexy on its own is, is all you need. Other times, and in my experience, it's particularly true with children who have trachea associated with esophageal atresia, a tracheopexy is also uh, a helpful adjunct to that, which just stabilises the anterior wall of the trachea, uh, in addition to the aortopexy lifting it forwards and can prevent um, collapse. Okay. I understand that there are many different ways of doing an aortopexy. Could you tell us about how you do the aortopexy and just allude a little bit about what other techniques are available? Yeah, so there's a, a variety of ways of, uh, of, of approaching an aortopexy, including um, direct uh, mediastinal uh, approaches. So you can have an anterior mediastinal or a chamberlain approach, um, or you can do what I do, which is a more superior mediastinal approach via um, a suprasternal incision. Um, and to, to, to just to fill in a little bit more about my preferred approach, it's a suprasternal incision in the skin crease, uh, and you enter the, the mediastinum, excise the thymus, which takes you straight onto the innominate vein, which can be slipped and moved out of the way to identify the innominate artery, which can then be followed down into the arch of the aorta. Uh, and your aortopexy um, sutures applied at the root of the innominate in the arch of the aorta itself. Uh, I prefer this approach um, because it gives very uh, simple and straightforward access uh, to the mediastinum. Um, it doesn't transgress any other body cavities. Um, you, you straight into the mediastinum. It doesn't require any uh, any muscle cutting or, or uh, cartilage excisions. The Chamberlain does, um, and, and so it's relatively painless and it's cosmetically excellent with a small scar that um, sits in the skin crease. And my results from it are comparable to other approaches. It's not perfect. I don't have a 100% um, success rate, but my uh, success rate and recurrence rates are comparable with other approaches that have been uh, reported. Uh, a, a very popular approach uh, amongst pediatric surgeons is a thoracoscopic approach, um, and uh, other centers are reporting good results from this. I don't uh, use that approach um, for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, it, it doesn't seem strictly logical to me to go through the pleural cavity to access the mediastinum, and there are other routes to directly access the mediastinum. Uh, and, and secondly, when you're um, applying the sutures uh, into the aorta, uh, it's very difficult to get the depth exactly right, and you're not aiming for a full thickness bite through the uh, aortic wall, um, but that can happen sometimes, and that can give you some troublesome bleeding, um, which is only a needle hole, so it's not dangerous. Um, um, but uh, can be, uh, as I say, troublesome, is much more easily controlled during a, an open approach um, than it would be during a thoracoscopic approach. And also the operating times are, uh, appear to be longer with a thoracoscopic approach than uh, with, with the approach that I use. And I, and I believe probably, as with a lot of paediatric surgical procedures, would you say that there's no real significant evidence Saying any other technique is better than the other? No, that's that's right. And um, actually, the um, success rates and recurrence rates for for any of the approaches are really very similar um, and comparable. And I think it's up to the individual surgeon really to 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 use what, what approach they are most familiar, most comfortable with. And as long as their uh, results uh, and outcomes are um, comparable, 
to those uh, others that are published, um, then, then that's perfectly acceptable. I don't think, uh, as you say, that, that anyone is any better or worse than, than the others. Uh, unfortunately, as in uh, many things in paediatric surgery, we have really our um, case series to uh, base our recommendations on. I don't think uh, we're ever going to be in a place where we have a randomised control trial of different um, approaches that was basically for a whole variety of perfectly valid reasons. Uh, but I think uh, we'll have to be a little bit more pragmatic with our evidence. And like I said, as long as your results are comparable to others, then whatever approach you, you, you use is, is perfectly acceptable. So, so then based on your experience, would you say, are there any particular prognostic indicators or patient groups in whom you think that this is not going to be successful? Yes, there, there are some. And so um, we've done some work at uh, the Evelina looking at our case series of patients. And broadly speaking, um, they can be divided into four groups. There's the children uh, who have previously had um, esophageal atresia, tracheosophageal fistula repairs. There are babies who are born prematurely. Uh, there are children with other syndromes. Um, and then um, there is a, a smaller group of children who are otherwise completely normal and have isolated trichomalacia. And in our experience, the children that uh, do the best following autopexy are the uh, children with OATOF, um, and then followed by the um, children who are prematurely, uh, who actually do similarly well, and, and around 75% of those are, are uh, either symptom-free or significantly improved following uh, an aortopexy or plus or minus tracheopexy, depending. Um, and um, the ones uh, who are really not helped by this are the children with syndromes. And I suppose that makes sense because all a, an aortopexy can really address is you know, a few centimetres of, of trachea. Um, and uh, clearly a child who has a, a syndrome that their whole body is affected in some way by this um, and, and that would probably explain the disappointing results uh, for those children and now I'm much more circumspect in offering aortopexy uh, to families of children with a syndrome. A, a small proportion of them are improved but the vast majority uh, it doesn't make any difference and they end up on, on positive pressure ventilation um, as I've already described. Um, but if the family would like to try that in an effort to avoid CPAP, then I, I might be persuaded to uh, to give it a go. But um, my experience is that it, it doesn't work very well. And then would you say the same for in your group when you've uh, assessed patients and they've had evidence of bronchomalacia? What do you say to, to those cases of parents? Yeah, but if there's good evidence of uh, of the malacia continuing down into into the bronchi, um, either on bronchoscopy or on um, on CT, then uh, I think you need to be honest uh, with those families. And actually, uh, again, all uh, an aortopexy can address is a few centimetres of trachea. If the problem is distal to that, then um, you're not going to help. Having said that, um, there are um, children with uh, multi-level airway malacia who um, there's a possibility that if you can address their trachea, it may be possible to uh, stent their distal airways uh, and avoid um, tracheal venting uh, these children. So with an MDT approach and a, and a, a multi-stage approach to their uh, airway disease, it can be possible to, to treat them successfully with that. But that does need to be in the context of an MDT and fairly careful planning.
Sure. So a couple of controversial um, things coming up to the end. Um, the Van der Zee group from the Netherlands, they talk about in the literature the use of prophylactic aortopexies in the esophageal atresia group. Uh, what is your opinion on this? Well, it's tempting, isn't it? Because you might um, think that you're you're preventing problems um, before they start, and particularly if you're considering a group of children who might have acute life events, that, that can be uh, really quite an alarming presenting uh, problem. Um, and so, it, it's it's superficially attractive to think you might be able to prevent those problems. But we know from our own uh, work in the Evelina that actually, when you look at children who have uh, esophageal atresia with a bronchoscopy, then um, a large proportion of them will have tracheal accumulation. Some of those can appear very severe with the front wall of the trachea actually touching the back wall of the trachea uh, on expiration. But that's a very poor predictor of later symptoms. And some children who appear to have severe tracheal malacia are completely asymptomatic. And some children who appear to have no tracheal malacia at the time of initial surgery then go on and develop uh, trachea that is symptomatic and, and warrants intervention. So um, you would be doing an awful lot of aortopexies that will later prove to be unnecessary. Um, and at the moment, uh, I don't know of a good way of identifying those uh, children that might benefit from it in advance. So I would not advocate a, a um, prophylactic aortopexy. Okay, and I guess on the same theme, um, there is the group, the Jennings group in America, who also describe uh, similarly performing posterior tracheopexies. And again, would you say your opinion is the same for these? Uh, well, it is the same in that I wouldn't currently advocate it. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the uh, posterior tracheopexy, and I think that there's uh, some sense to it uh, in that uh, when you look at uh, the trachea of a child with uh, tracheoesophageal fistula, the back wall is much broader and um, the cartilages are, uh, the tracheal cartilages are um, much, much broader um, uh, and, and don't curl back on themselves uh, like they do. And so it is the back wall which can uh, intrude onto the into the airway and obstruct the lumen. So by doing a posterior tracheopexy, uh, I can see what they're trying to achieve. But uh, what I would uh, counter that with is that there's an awful lot of dissection in order to achieve a posterior tracheopexy. And uh, actually, when you do an anterior tracheopexy, because you're not simply lifting a vessel off the front of the trachea, you're lifting the whole trachea forwards by doing that because of the um, fashion investments there. As you lift the, uh, the, the, the front part of the trachea forward and, and the back wall will remain relatively fixed, you're actually creating that space and probably doing much the same thing as you would do with, with a posterior tracheopexy in terms of fixing the back wall or, or moving it away from the front wall. So I, I watched with interest their experiences with it, but I'm certainly not ready to, to, to go for it myself at the moment. Okay, fantastic. Um, so I've just got two cases that I wanted to mention to you. So this is a, a 36-week uh, baby who is post-esophageal atresia, tracheosophageal fistula repair. The procedure itself went well, but the baby and the neonatal unit are now they're unable to extubate this infant. Uh, and they want your advice, what would you say? Well, the first um, thing to ask them is, uh, why can't they extubate the baby? And there's a variety of reasons why uh, you, you're unable to um, 
uh, extubate uh, a neonate um, following surgery and maybe their uh, pressure requirements are too high or they're um, not breathing spontaneously or so on and so forth. So typically, if this is due to tracheal malaria, what you'll find is that they'll be able to wean uh, the ventilation uh, down, uh, but they won't be able to completely remove uh, the positive airway. And as soon as the positive airway pressure rises, as soon as they do, the baby stops coping. Um, so they can be sitting there very happily, very minimal support, just a very small amount of peep uh, in air. But as soon as you say the tube out, they, 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 they start struggling. Uh, and if that is the, the story that we're being given, um, what I would uh, do then is, as I've said before, uh, bronchoscopy um, with intention to continue to CT to, to further define and delineate um, the, the trachea and look for evidence of trachea Fine. And and then if we have another baby, again, this one's another, this is now a three-month-old baby, their post-esophageal atries are repair. They've had problems, of course, swallowing. They had an early esophageal stricture for which they had a dilatation. They are having problems with vomiting. Mm -hmm. They've had a chest infection. And they've also been to PICU now recently with a suspected blue episode. Okay. So what would you do now for this patient? Well, again, there's a a large variety of reasons why this baby might be having these problems. Uh, So, you know, they've had a stricture before. The stricture may have recurred. And so they may be filling their upper pouch above the uh, stricture and then uh, regurgitating and aspirating. That would account for all of the symptoms you just described. Uh, they may be refluxing, as is almost universal in babies with esophageal uh, atresia. Uh, so they um, that they may again have refluxed and, and aspirated. So uh, you, you must be wary of going straight for one cause or another. Um, but stroke emulation would certainly be a more differential diagnosis. So I think a baby uh, like that, that sounds like they. they have had what could be described as an acute life-threatening sure of a full workup, and that would include an esophagoscopy looking for a stricture, probably a pH and feeding study to try and quantify their reflux, um, and a bronchoscopy to look for trachea and then work through the the, the, the findings of those um, uh, as they come back and, and treat what, what, what you find. Fantastic. So um, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on our series today. Um, thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to having you back on EPIPS again in the future. My pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.